Welcome to the Best Interest Podcast, where we believe Benjamin Franklin's advice that an investment in knowledge pays the best interest, both in finances and in your life. Every episode teaches you personal finance and investing in simple terms. Now, here's your host, Jesse Kramer. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 71 of the Best Interest Podcast. My name is Jesse Kramer. Later in today's episode, I'm going to be welcoming Diana Merriam onto the podcast. Diana is the founder of a really cool conference for people who are financially independent or seeking financial independence. The conference is called Economy, but we'll talk to Diana and get into those details later. First, as always, I want to do a little bit of a cool intro. This week's intro is about Robert Kiyosaki, otherwise known as Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I want to share some thoughts on him. But first, we have to do our review of the week. This week's review comes from Kukli. I think I'm saying that right. K-U underscore C-L-E. Kukli says, what a gem. Jesse has a great approach to investing that he shares throughout his podcast. His calm and measured approach encourages basic investing fundamentals that can be easy to lose in this fast-paced world. He does a nice job pulling in data and examples without getting overly technical. This is a podcast that the new investor can easily pick up, and yet experienced DIY investors can still learn from and find value in. Keep up the great work, Jesse. Well, Kukli, thank you for those kind words. If you're listening to this, Kukli, drop me an email, jesse at bestinterest.blog, and we'll get you hooked up with some cool best interest gear. All right, now... Robert Kiyosaki was in the news again this week, and as usual, the reason why is because he is predicting doom and gloom for the economy, for the US. That's one of his favorite things to do. And one thing, if anything, that I want to share with you guys today is that that's Robert Kiyosaki's calling card, or at least it has been for the you know 25 or so years since he published what is a famous and highly regarded book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. We're not going to talk too much about Rich Dad, Poor Dad here today. You can go out and read it if you want. It does share some solid financial and investing principles. One of the main ones being that you want to own income-producing assets. Stocks are an example of income-producing assets. So are bonds. I know Kiyosaki and many of his followers really like real estate. Real estate is an income-producing asset. All well and good. And when you own income-producing assets which are generating income, as the name implies, uh, you can then use that income to buy more of those assets. Hence, compounding growth, what every investor wants. That's the gist of Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I just saved you four hours. You don't have to read it yourself if you don't want to. Unfortunately, since Kiyosaki published that book, his tone, I'm not sure if it's changed. I mean, he might have always been a bit of a salesman and a bit of a fear mongerer, but he really has taken the fear mongering to extremes. First, I want to read you guys from an article I wrote in July of 2022, which was what, 16 months ago, 17 months ago, at which time Kiyosaki was once again crying wolf. And the title of this article is Blowhards, Broken Clocks, and Confirmation Bias. And I want to start out by apologizing to anybody out there named Sky or maybe Wolf, or maybe you changed your name to Dandelion or something like that if you took that spiritual route. Because I do in this article, I, I call out people named Sky. That's a bit unfair of me to do. But the reason why I want to apologize to some of those more spiritual folks is that I start by saying that astrology is a pseudoscience. And it's a pseudoscience that preys upon the all too human irrationality of confirmation bias. Now, we're going to break down exactly what I mean by that. So either astrology is a pseudoscience, a fake science, or your life is subject to the positions of nearby moons, slightly more distant planets, and stars that are light years away. Doesn't quite seem plausible to me. So like I said, I apologize to you guys if you believe in astrology. I just think it's really dumb. And I think you're falling for something pretty fake if you do believe in astrology. In fact, you might be falling for confirmation bias. Confirmation bias occurs when people search for, interpret, favor, or recall information in a way that confirms or supports your prior experience. Now, let's talk about an example. Why am I bringing up astrology and confirmation bias back to back? Here's the example. This is an actual horoscope from July 27th, 2022, the day I wrote this article. My horoscope, I'm an Aries, it said, 
you'll have an opportunity to speak from the heart without feeling overly vulnerable today, dear Aries, as communicative Mercury shares a sweet connection with the healing asteroid Chiron. Meanwhile, the moon continues its journey through Cancer, bringing a compassionate and sensitive energy your way. Use the momentum of this cosmic climate to nurture your dearest friendships. But don't hold back if you need to voice dissatisfaction in your relationships, as long as you do so from a calm and diplomatic place. The moon moves into Leo just as the witching hour nears, bringing out your inner creativity over the next two days. Okay, I've got so many questions. Well, first off, uh, I, I can speak from the heart, according to my horoscope, being compassionate and sensitive. I can nurture my friendships, but I can also voice dissatisfaction as long as I am calm and diplomatic. Also, I've got 48 hours of creativity. And then after those 48 hours, I don't know. I'm not really sure. I'm a little bit worried about what happens when the moon moves into Leo and the witching hour ends. I mean, what happens after the witching hour ends? Also, I, I find it interesting how a lot of this was predicated on the fact that Mercury, the planet, which is communicative, I'm not sure how planets can be good at communication, but that Mercury is sharing a sweet connection with Chiron, which is an asteroid, and, and not only any asteroid, it's a healing asteroid. So thankfully, that led to my compassion and sensitive energy and diplomatic calm and inner creativity, only for 48 hours though. Okay, you guys get what I'm going at. My horoscope basically reads, today, you're a human being. That's what it said. This is just one Aries horoscope from that particular day. And then according to many of the other Aries horoscopes out there, today could also bring me frustration, confusion, joy, a slight head cold, hunger, laughter, and just about every other human emotion. Now, are they all true? Is every horoscope true for all Aries? Of course it's not. But some people believe in horoscopes because they interpret that information in a way that confirms or supports their prior experience about who they are. That is textbook confirmation bias. We see little hints inside the horoscopes that do actually remind us of ourselves, and then we want to believe that it's true. And some part of our slightly reptilian, very primate monkey brains says, oh, it must be true then. But it's not. That's confirmation bias. Horoscopes are written so generally that any person could reasonably twist the words to fit their own life. And sometimes the confirmation will be so strong that even the most rational reader will think, man, is this really a coincidence? I mean, this horoscope sounds just like me. But it is a coincidence. It always has been and always will be a coincidence. Horoscopes are just like blind squirrels finding a nut or broken clocks that are right two times a day. So friend of the blog, Craig, he sent me an article back in July of 2022. And the headline of this article was major crash to come. Robert Kiyosaki warns that a key economic signal is flashing bright red. Here are the three assets he likes for shock safety. And then the article uh, came with the following commentary from Craig, who credit to Craig here. Craig said, I just want to go through and capture all the bullshit people calling for everything to implode and hold on to it looking back in five years. Craig's got a great point. Blowhards and bullshit artists like Robert Kiyosaki, they sow fear for a living. And I know some of you might be saying, well, Robert Kiyosaki, he sold millions of copies of Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I get it. He wrote one book. It sold millions of copies. And he's been a con artist ever since. Now, if you guys spend any time in the kind of financial media space, you might have seen this graphical representation before of Kiyosaki's awful takes. And I'm going to find a way to share this in the show notes. So look for a link that says Kiyosaki's awful takes, and it will bring you to this plot. And now what the plot shows, for those of you who aren't going to be able to see it, it shows the S&P 500 from 2009 until about 2022. And the S&P 500, as you might know, pretty much goes up and to the right. And then at eight different times over that 10 year, 12 year span, it shows a tweet or a quote or a headline from Robert Kiyosaki, including 2011, the crash is not over. He was referring to the great financial crisis. It was over. 2015, crash coming in 2016. I've been calling it since 2002. What? He was calling a crash 14 years in advance? He was also wrong for what it's worth. 2017, real estate crash is coming. 
Still waiting for that one, Robert. 2018, biggest crash is coming. Well, that one didn't come. 2020, the everything crash is coming. Everything, everything. This was after COVID on the way to the recovery. The everything crash is coming. In 2021, the stock market crash is coming. Well, maybe that time he was actually right. Because if you sold stocks in October of 2021, like Robert said, you'd probably be in a pretty happy place at some point during 2022, especially in July of 2022 when I wrote this article. If you sold before the 2022 crash, you'd probably be happy with yourself. But then you have to remind yourself, if you sold your stocks in 2011 and 2015 and 2017 and 2018 and 2020, just like Robert Kiyosaki said, you'd actually be pretty pissed right now. This man is a blowhard. He doesn't deserve credit for being right in late 2021. He doesn't deserve credit for being right once a decade. He's a rich wolf. His avid fans are poor sheep. He uses doomsday predictions to instill fear, and then he sells. So fear, sell to those who are fearful, and then profit. Kiyosaki is a pessimistic horoscope writer. Today will be a rainstorm, and you left your umbrella at home. And when a storm actually does rain on your parade, it'll feel like Kiyosaki was onto something, like he was right. But we too quickly forget that we've had a sunny, dry summer, despite Kiyosaki calling for rain every single day. He's a blind squirrel. He's a broken clock. He's a blowhard, a bullshit artist. He's a mad prophet. Craig, the reader who, who sent in the cool infographic that inspired today's article and podcast, Craig was right. Our only option is to preserve his bad calls as evidence. We need to remind the financial astrologers and ourselves just how wrong they've been in the past. These astrologers, they are the boys who cried wolf, and we're correct to not believe them, even when they happen to get it right once in a while. They've foisted that fate upon themselves. It's either that or the moons of Uranus are entering the house of Sauron, in which case we're all screwed. Or at least that's what Sky told me. Here's a quick ad, and then we'll get back to the show. Every week, I send a quick free email to thousands of readers that shares three simple things. One, my new articles and podcasts. Two, the best financial content of the week from all over the internet. And three, a financial chart that explains some important concept in the news that week. It's a great primer to boost your financial know-how. Uh, but Jesse, I don't want another email. Well, this might not be for you. But I do hear you, which is why I make it very short, sweet, and full of only the essentials. While 18% of people who sign up eventually unsubscribe, and 13% of people who are signed up haven't opened it in the past three months, a whopping 66% of subscribers read my email at least once a month. They're enjoying it, and maybe you will too. You can subscribe for free on the homepage at bestinterest.blog. Again, that's a free, no-strings-attached subscription at bestinterest.blog. And now, I feel a little bit bad because today's guest, Diana Miriam, is awesome. And I didn't necessarily want to introduce this awesome guest, Diana, by first talking about Robert Kiyosaki. That wasn't my intention at all. There is no causal connection between the two. They are very much independent people, and I want you guys to know that. It's just that Kiyosaki made headlines for himself again these past couple weeks, it's been the talk of the town, so to speak. And I just wanted to throw my two cents in there and remind you all that I think I'm a pretty nice guy. I think I'm a pretty rational guy. And for that reason, what Robert Kiyosaki does, it grinds my gears. He's not helping people. He's harming people. But someone who is helping people is Diana Miriam. And I want to talk about Diana now. Diana is the founder of the Economy Conference. She's also the chief economist of the conference. Economy is the only large-scale event organized specifically for the financial independence retire early movement. Diana has been featured on Business Insider, Market Watch, Good Day Columbus, CNBC, WLWT5 TV, as well as many famous podcasts, including Choose FI, Bigger Pockets Money, and Stacking Benjamins. So without further ado, let's welcome Diana Miriam onto the Best Interest Podcast. All right, Diana, thanks for being here on the Best Interest Podcast. I thought we could start this conversation on the Camino de Santiago. 
Or maybe if it makes more sense, we can go back a few months or a few years before the Camino de Santiago. But why exactly am I asking you about this ostensibly Spanish term? What exactly is the Camino de Santiago and how did you end up there? Yeah. So it's a good question because it's very relevant to my financial journey and finding the fire movement and kind of cleaning up my finances. But the Camino is a 500 mile trek across northern Spain. Historically, it's a Catholic pilgrimage. People actually did this in the olden days for like penance. These days, it's kind of more a life adventure, I guess you can, you can say. Mm. People do it for a lot of different reasons. And I was introduced by an aunt of mine who did it when she was in her 40s. And in my young 20s, she had just kind of like mentioned it. It was the first time I ever heard about it. And she said, maybe this is something you would like to do. This is something I did. It was kind of in the back of my mind. And then a couple of years later, she mentioned that my uncle wanted to do it for his 70th birthday. And in my mind, it's like, wait, my 70-year-old uncle is going to walk 500 miles across the country? Like, that's insane. How is he going to do that? I felt <laughs> compelled to like, let me just go and support him. Like, that was my initial motivation. And it seemed like something that would be happening like way in the future, right? Mm -hmm. So it's just kind of, again, put a pin in that. You know, that's going to be like way down the line. I don't know how I'm going to make that work, but it just seems like something on your bucket list, right? Like, maybe one day I'll do this thing. You know, I'm approaching my later 20s. I think I'm around 27, 28. And I'm talking to my aunt. I'm like, what was that thing that you guys were going to do? The Camino? And she goes, oh, yeah, we we're going to do that for, you know, his 70th birthday. And she starts like doing some quick math. And she goes, oh, that's going to be in 2017. He's turning 70. And I realized I'm turning I was turning 30 that same year. And so then I was like, oh, this is like two, three years away. Like I got to get, if I'm actually going to do this, I got to figure this out. So I started reading a ton about it. You know, there's some documentaries and movies and stuff about it. So started doing a lot of research and realizing that if I'm actually going to do this, I need to be financially prepared for it. Because at that time, I was focused on my corporate career. I was in debt, but I didn't even know how much debt I was in. I was just like paying on credit cards, you know, and student loans and not really paying attention. Mm -hmm. And so knowing that I didn't think it was going to be possible to take time that much time off of work because I wanted to take like two months off. I figured I'd have to quit my job. And so if I'm going to quit my job, like I need to save some money and I need to figure out my finances. And that just opened a whole can of worms. Did you end up quitting the job? I mean, because that, that's a huge change to make. That's a huge decision to make. Yeah. So I ended up not having to quit my job. I actually asked for a sabbatical. I asked for an unpaid two-month sabbatical. Okay. And at the time I was in a sales role, I had like the best numbers of my career. I like ended the fiscal year with like some really good numbers. And I had been on this upward trajectory of just doing better and better every year. So and at the time I had worked for the company for about five years. So it wasn't like I was in my first year and making this big ask. Like I'd been with the company for a while. I was very valuable to them. I knew I had a point of leverage and they had been giving me pretty substantial raises every year. So what I said is instead of another raise, I want to have this opportunity to take this sabbatical. And so it ended up working out very nicely. That's awesome. So then you're turning 30 and you go to Spain, you, you fly into Spain. And I mean, how how is the hike itself? I know it's not necessarily a financial topic, but maybe we actually can dive into the financial planning that went into the hike. But 500 miles, ostensibly, that's something that takes, what, a few months? Yeah. So it took me 38 days, which is cool. if in comparison to like how fast other people do this trek. 30 days is kind of an average. So I was a little bit slow. And that's because I got a little sick towards the end. So I, you know, you walk between 10 and 20 miles a day. Towards the end, I was really kind of on the lower side of that. And yeah, it was an incredible adventure. I mean, it's something that a lot of people do at more of a traditional retirement age. You know, I mm -hmm. met a lot of people in their 60s, in their 70s, in their 80s. And I will say that, you know, these remarkable people that I met you know, that were doing this really hard thing, you know, they really showed me that age is just a number. And I felt really grateful that I was doing it at such a young age. But like the examples that I've had in my life of people in their 70s and 80s were not these like physically active people doing this like incredible, you know, trek across a country. 
And so I found that very inspiring to really want to take care of myself and to age well. Mm -hmm. I also feel like it was my first time in my life that I actually could put work down in a really meaningful way. Because before that, you know, I'd have I'd have like three weeks of vacation per year, two to three weeks, you know, for most of my career. And I would never take my vacation. I, it would kind of like at the end of the year when everybody was taking off for like the holidays, I would, you know, have like two weeks during that time. Anytime I would take a vacation, I would always be working on vacation. I could never mm. fully disconnect. It felt like vacation was just procrastination. It didn't feel like a time to recharge. I couldn't fully enjoy it because I was just just a little too hyper fixated on my career and work. And so with the Camino, I had to really prepare for it. Like I had asked probably six months in advance. And so I had six months to like wrap up projects, prepare my clients, prepare my team who were taking over for things. And it wasn't even that I worked for 10 months that year. I pushed 12 months of work into 10 months, you know, and that was actually one of my highest performing years, the year that I took two months off, Uh you know, I felt like I need, I had something to prove that like this could be beneficial for everyone involved. But I will say that like when I went over there, I didn't have my work phone. I didn't have access to my email. It was an unpaid leave. So it was very much like I am inaccessible. Like you cannot contact me at all. I thought it was going to be really hard for me to disconnect. It That was actually very easy. A lot easier than I thought it was going to be because I had this other huge challenge in front of me to focus on. Retirement is super impactful. And and what you just pointed out, Diana, is that it can be impactful, even though for you at the time, it was just a, what, 38-day sabbatical. That act of disconnecting from work or disconnecting yourself from that identity of being the worker, of being the person who is dependent on, who's important, who's leading the sales team in, in numbers. For some people, it's very easy or it ends up being extremely beneficial for them to break away from that identity. In an earlier episode of the of the Best Interest Podcast, we had on Fritz Gilbert of the Retirement Manifesto. Mm-hmm. He often talks about how for some people, it's actually pretty hard. And there's a stat that he uses, which is 28% of retirees end up facing some sort of depression during retirement. And one of the biggest reasons why is at times, you know, well, at, at my job for the last 35 years, 40 years, I knew what I was going to get up and do every morning. I knew that I was going to get social stimulation from friends and colleagues. I was dependent on, I had a role. And recently at a different conference than the one where we met at a conference that I was at in Philadelphia, I took a a class on grief. Mm. And actually there is a form of grieving that some people feel when they are split from a previous role or responsibility that they had, especially one that's, that's lasted for decades and decades now. I'm going down at a bit of a rabbit hole there. Maybe we can come back to some of those topics. Well, and I just to kind of comment on that, yeah, I think yeah. that that is a very relevant point. And I think that's a very real reality for people who retire at any age. I think what allowed me to guard against that is that I had a purpose. Like I had a very specific thing that I was focused on doing, which was this walking 10 to 20 miles a day. You know, and it's and what I, I think is beneficial about it is it really simplifies life. You have to spend a lot of time to set yourself up, you know, administratively to, you know, have all of your stuff on auto pay and have, you know, have all of your things taken care of so that you can literally only focus on like getting up in the morning, eating something, walking, finding a place to sleep, taking a shower, washing your clothes, eating again, going to bed, and then rinse and repeat the next day. It's a very like simple routine, but it creates a lot of space to do some deep thinking about life that, you know, when we are caught up in the hustle and bustle of every day, we may not necessarily have that time and space. But I also think there's enough structure there where maybe you don't have that sense of loss or feeling lost because you don't have a purpose. I had a purpose. My purpose was to get up and walk every day. But I even see that now in being like in the fire movement and seeing and being in contact with so many people who retire early. And there is there can be a sense of feeling a loss of of structure that makes you feel a little bit more secure. 
when there's this expansiveness of time, I think a lot of us have this illusion that we're going to be a lot more self-motivated than we actually know how to be. Because most of our lives, we've had some kind of external structure imposed on us, you know, whether it's school, whether it's work, there's something external that dictates how we use our time. And so when you get kind of the keys to the castle and you are fully in charge of that, that you're going to be able to fill that time. And there's so many things that you want to do, but I think it can be very disorienting. The expansiveness of it can be really disorienting. The expansiveness, and this isn't through lived experience, but mainly through hearing and reading other people's experiences. It's expansive, not only on a, in a single day where maybe you used to have three or four hours of free time, and now you have 14 or 16 hours of free time, but you're now doing that every single day. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's easy for me to say, yeah, if you give me three hours of free time, I'm, I'm going to go work out, I'll walk the dog, I'll write a blog post. And, and next thing I know, my three hours of free time are, are filled up. But now I have that much time times five every single day. It almost makes you feel guilty or I feel a little bit guilty thinking like, well, boy, isn't that the dream? Like, of course, I could fill up that time with different stuff. But everything I read says once you're in it, unless you really have dedicated time to retire to something, to Mm -hmm. have that vision in mind of how you're going to spend that time, it can creep up on you that you're maybe a little bit bored or a little bit lost or you are in this giant expanse and, and you can't quite feel the walls around you of structure. And that's a little off-putting. It, it makes you feel uncomfortable. 100%. And I think that the reason why some of that is so disorienting is because we have this expectation that like retirement is the dream, that like to not work is somehow the goal. I think in my experience, I don't think that not working is the goal of reaching financial independence. I think it's having full autonomy over your work and maybe working less and having it be a little bit more self-directed. But I do think that being productive, being useful, having purpose is a really big part of well-being. And so it's funny because I I see, you know, we're both in all of the different personal finance groups and forums. And, you know, we see these questions come up all the time of people obsessing over their fire number and how am I going to reach this goal? And I wonder sometimes, yes, like the financials are obviously important. We want to do good financial planning. We want to calculate what we need to calculate. But at a certain point, I almost feel like we need to be asking bigger questions, not like, how do I reduce my expenses, increase my income, invest the difference? What is my fine number? How am I, you know, are my assumptions sound for these different financial planning models and all of that kind of stuff? Like, that's all great. But I think the bigger question is, what do you want to do with your time? Who do you want to spend it with? And what do you want to create? And a lot of us think like, oh, I'll answer those after I reach my financial goals. Right, right. But I just sometimes I wonder in the fire movement if we're focused on the wrong things. Because what I see, and you know, I do these local meetups in Cincinnati where we do mm-hmm. case studies and people put together their financials, their income, their expenses, their investments, you know, their kind of plan to reach FI. And we all look up at the screen of these people's numbers, and most of them are like millionaires, like they're doing really, really, really well. And all they're asking is like, they look up at their numbers and all they feel is fear. Hmm. And, you know, what I've gotten out of these case studies is I think we're asking our money to do a lot more emotional heavy lifting than it's capable of doing. And we want it to like answer questions that it can't answer, right? Like money is just a resource. It is just a tool. It is up for, it's up to us to choose how we're going to use the tool. And, I just see so many of us, like myself included, thinking that like reaching this magic number is going to answer more questions than it actually does. How do we better answer some of those questions then, Dan? I mean, is it going to therapy? Is it talking to our partners more about our dreams? Is it simply, you know, spending some time inside our own heads and really asking ourselves what we want out of life? Because I I agree with you, money and the numbers themselves are a tool. It can be a terrific tool. It can be a tool that buys us a lot of freedom and flexibility in life. Mm-hmm. But whoever the philosopher is who said, you know, money's a great tool, but a terrible master. 
And some of those stories that I read on, say, Reddit, some subreddit about financial independence, and you read someone's story about they were tracking their FI number from the time they were 25 and and now they're 33 and they finally reached fire and they've been retired for a year and they're lost mm-hmm. and they hate it. And, and you kind of look at the details and you realize, wow, for the last seven or eight years, money might have been a bit more of a master than a tool. And when they saw their number going up and they reached, they saw FI closer and closer in the windshield and they were almost there, really like money was this master that was saying like, you're doing it, you're doing it, you're getting close, which made them feel good. But once they got to the goal, and now money's no longer really important because they're there and they have to figure out what to do next in life. They have no idea. They're yeah. lost. They have no roadmap. What's some of the work that we can do earlier to make sure that we don't have that unfortunate circumstance befall us? Right. I think we need to place less value on hitting our FI number. I think mm. we need to live in a way that makes the FI number kind of irrelevant because like What I see, again, in these case studies is people will say, when I reach my fine number, I'm going to make this change, whatever change it is. And I guess what I would encourage people to think about is why can't you make that change now? Most of us that are on this path already have the financial resources to either work less, to take on a different job pursue a hobby that we think we're going to be better suited to pursue once we reach our fine number. Like, I think the key is to not wait and to also recognize like what we think we want. We could be wrong about it. Why not experiment with those assumptions that we have about how we want to use our time now so that it's not so disorienting if we're wrong about it later? So I'll give you an example. When I was walking the Camino, I spent a lot of time by myself just kind of walking along and I would sing a lot. And I found this like release in singing. And so I really thought what I wanted to do when I got back is like, I want to sing. I want to pursue this. This is an interest that like is kind of reignited for me. And I I had sung when I was like younger, like in high school and that kind of thing, but I just kind of lost touch with it. But even when I was a kid, like I always imagined myself like on a stage somewhere, like singing with a band, you know, it was just like something that I always imagined that I could do one day. And so when I got back from the Camino, I'm like, I want to pursue this thing. And it just so happened that down the street from my house, a school of rock opened up, which is like a franchise for kids, Mm -hmm. but they have an adult Mm -hmm. program. And so I joined and for four months, I like had to sing every day. I had a, a voice coach. I had band practice once a week. And it ended with, we had a performance in front of like a hundred people where I sang seven songs and I worked really, really hard at this. And when it was all over, like my bandmates were all just like basking in the glory of a great performance. And they're all like, I can't wait to do this again. And all I felt was relief that it was over. That's not to say that I failed at this thing. I think I validated that there was something of interest to me in performance But maybe that just wasn't the right outlet for it, right? And I was able to answer this question in my mind of like, one day I'll do that. Or maybe that could have been a path for me. I did it. And I feel like I gave it my best shot. And I'm really glad that I did it. But it's something that I can put away now. It's not something that like, I'm going to be on my deathbed thinking I could have been a singer, right? Like I went down that path. I scratched that itch. I got the information that I needed from it. I feel like we need more of that, like to test those assumptions on what we think we're going to be enjoying with all this time that we have in retirement. And maybe it's like a phase, like we enjoy something for a little bit and then we need to reinvent and try something else. But I think the key is to not wait. And that's why I've become a lot more interested in this concept of like slow fi and coast fi, because it really focuses on the journey to get to your fine number is equally as important as reaching it and what what you're going to do after it. And I think there are a lot of like thought exercises. There are a few like really great creators like the Fioneers, for example. I feel like they put out really good content about slow fi and coast fi. For me, it has helped me realize that I've already reached some key financial milestones to give myself permission to do things differently. And that reaching that fine number is not the only milestone that where you can make a big change. Here's a quick ad and then we'll get back to the show. 
One of the more common questions I hear is, Jesse, what do you like and use? Books, blogs, podcasts, even banks and brokerage firms. What are your recommendations? So to answer that question, I put together a webpage. You can check it out at bestinterest.blog recommendations. Again, that's bestinterest.blog recommendations to check out how I'm improving my financial life. And so for listeners who are unaware, and, and I'll, I'm going to do my best to provide a little definition, but Diane, I, I'm really looking on you to, to fill in some of the, the gaps. I'm picturing like a color by numbers, uh, if you will. Mm-hmm. And, and I've only got like three colored pencils in my brain. So you've got the rest of the Crayola box. So you're going to have to help out. I mean, traditional fire, the way it was introduced by, you know, Mr. Money Mustache and those kind of folks was you're saving like 50 or 60 or mm-hmm. 70% of your income you're retiring at 28 or 32 or 36 years old. And it's very much of living this Spartan lifestyle, not only during the saving portion, but oftentimes into retirement because you're living on a very low percentage of your of your income. And so you're making sacrifices along the way. But the nice part is when you reach FI at such a young age, you've got all this free time to do whatever you want with. Whereas SloFi and CoastFi, and I'm not sure I know the difference between the two, but mm-hmm. all they do is they say, maybe you continue to work a little bit after your initial retirement and, and you maybe you have some side income, or maybe you're just not quite saving as much. You're saving more than maybe the typical American does, and that's great. So maybe you're going to retire at 50 or 45 instead of 35 mm-hmm. or 30. But w- what other details am I missing about Slow sure. and CoastFi? So- I think in general, like the idea of fire, I think of it as like a spectrum of all these different flavors of fi and like Mm. ways that people look about it, look at it and approach it. So like traditional fire, the way that you described it, you're saving as much as you possibly can. For some people, that looks like 50 to 70 percent of their income or 80 percent, whatever it is. Right. You're you're saving as much as you can to reach your Phi number 25 times your annual expenses as fast as possible. That's kind of like where I started out, right? Same. And so, yes, that's kind of like one lens to look at it with. I think slow fi is kind of recognizing again that speed isn't the determining factor of you're doing this right. <laughs> and I think it also recognizes that you know, your life is not happening after you reach your phi number. It's happening now. So how do you prioritize the journey as much as the destination? So it's looking at it through that lens and also recognizing like, it's not just save as much as you can possibly save and live this Spartan lifestyle, but how do you balance spending money now so that you can enjoy your life now while also saving for the future, right? Like it's not an either or question. It's how do I do both? And like, what is that optimal level of spending? I just think in general, the way I think of SloFi is it's getting rid of the race part of it. It's getting rid of the like need for speed because you're creating a life now that you don't need to retire from. So, And then the way that I separate out CoastFi from that is I think it's very complementary to SloFi. But with CoastFi, it's a really clear milestone. Just like when you say you're debt-free, that's a milestone. When you've saved your emergency fund, that's a milestone. When you have your FU money or peace out money for the polite among us, like that's a milestone. You've reached like a certain level of saving and investing. Coast-fi is when you have enough in your investment portfolio that it will grow to what you need through the power of compound interest for what you need for traditional retirement age if you don't even contribute one more dollar, I think of it as like front loading your retirement savings and letting compound interest do the rest of the work. And so that's like a clear milestone. There are calculators online that you can plug in your numbers and it will tell you what is your coast fine number, where it's almost like you can give yourself permission to take your foot off the gas. Me shifting from this more like traditional fire to this like coast fi, slow fi lens. What it's allowed me to do is make big changes. So I thought I was going to work until 40 at like a traditional corporate career. And I ended up retiring from my corporate career at 33 once I reached CoastFi status. And so now I am able to just meet my expenses, which are very low because not because I'm depriving myself, but just because that's the nature of like my, you know, I bought a house well below my means. I'm not very materialistic 
if it feels like deprivation, I would argue that you're doing it wrong. But I very much enjoy a more like minimalist lifestyle. It's easy for me to meet my expenses with just four hours of work a week, which I do through podcasting. And so that's like my only real source of income. But then I also have another business called the Economy Conference, which isn't a source of income for me. I think of it more of like a passion business or a passion project, hobby business, if you will. But it gives me something to do, right? It gives me purpose. It gives me, you know, it gives me a reason to get on podcasts and talk about this stuff. I think the benefit to me in changing that lens of how I look at fire and how I relate to it, it just removes the urgency to continue saving and pursuing my fine number. It's really changed the way that I relate to my money in general. I've kind of relaxed on the tracking. I've relaxed on the like being hyper-focused on the numbers because the reality is money creates options and allows you to do things and make changes. What would I change in my life tomorrow if I had $10 million? I can't think of anything that I would change. And so that to me is is like, okay, I've reached a, a level where it's um, all of this is almost irrelevant. That to me is the difference. I want to come back to the podcast and economy a little more because I mentioned them to the audience in the introduction, but I, I want to explore more details and, and learn from myself and shine a spotlight on the cool stuff you're doing, Diana. But before we get there, something you mentioned, you used the word deprivation, and, and we mm-hmm. talked about that. As, as When I was introduced to the FIRE movement, and I think the way a lot of mainstream Americans who maybe aren't paying attention to the personal finance space the way you and I are, the way that they see FIRE is through some of the articles that they might see on CNBC or, or some sort of mainstream media source. And that story of deprivation, sometimes it's front and center. If it's not front and center, it's often somewhere lurking beneath the surface in, inside the story where they'll share details about, and you know, Mr. Johnson, who retired at 32, eats rice and beans every day for dinner. And the average person out there is like, I certainly don't want to do that, right. but is that the only way that I'm allowed to retire early? Mm-hmm. And, and there almost is this, um, I was trying to think of a good analogy as you were speaking, but there's almost this like depravity competition in the fire space of who can make themselves suffer more in yeah. order to reach retirement earlier. Uh, now, granted, s- some people out there say, listen, I like rice and beans. I'm not a big food person. So for me, it's not depravity. Is that the right word? Depravity? I'm, I'm not holding anything back from myself sure. just by by this. But for a lot of people out there, including myself, if I were to turn my savings rate up another 10%, I probably could, but I would be squeezing a lot of juice out of my life that I currently enjoy having in my life. And that's where that personal trade-off has to mm-hmm. occur, where you say, what's worth saving money on? Versus what do I want to spend money on now just so I can enjoy my life? How do I focus on the things that really bring me joy today during the journey to FI so that I'm enjoying today, I'm enjoying tomorrow, and sure, maybe I'll retire early a little bit too. Sure. And, you know, it's a really personal thing to decide like what is your optimal level of spending? Again, I don't think it is spend the least that you possibly can to survive. It's spend the lowest amount that allows you to not feel deprived and still enjoy your life. Like to Mm -hmm. me, it's about optimization and efficiency than it is Mm -hmm. about Mm -hmm. increasing your savings rate as much as possible. And I would argue that the people that are like, look like they're depriving themselves or making themselves miserable. If that's actually what they're doing, I would argue that they're doing it wrong. But the examples that we see, like Mr. Money Mustache, for example, you know, he advocates for riding your bike everywhere. He really enjoys riding his bike. And he lives in an area where it's possible for him to ride his bike everywhere. And when I first started, he makes a very compelling argument about it. And, you know, when I first started reading his stuff, like I was like drinking the Kool-Aid. I was like, okay, I bought a bike. I lived in New York City. I hated it. I hated it, you know? And so it was like, this doesn't work for me. But Something like eating out, like I used to spend a lot of money eating out and then I learned how to cook and me packing my lunch every day, it's not a hardship. And the things that I'm cooking most of the time to me and not to sound like arrogant, but 
I feel like it's better than what I can get. Damn good. Yeah, it's better than what I could buy at like the corner deli when I was working. And so it feels like an efficiency more than it feels like a sacrifice. I also think that we have been conditioned since birth to be consumers. We have been conditioned to seek out luxury and to believe that if we don't have the newest iPhone, we're like somehow facing a hardship. And I think like for me, I really had to kind of shift my perspective around that and recognize that I live in a first world country. I have a roof over my head. I have food in my fridge. I have clothes on my back. I have running water. I have a comfortable bed to sleep in. I am living a very luxurious life in comparison to like most of the people on the planet. If you're comparing yourself to the Kardashians, then yes, you probably will feel deprived. But if you think about like the World Bank reported at one point that half the population is living on less than $5 a day. Compare yourself to that. Your lifestyle, even if you are eating rice and beans every day, is still pretty luxurious. So I think it's more of a perspective shift and to kind of recognize where your desires are and what they've been conditioned by. So like, for example, I drive like a 2010 Mazda 3. No one would look at my car and like be like, ooh, wow. But it's not that I'm making a sacrifice. It, I, I don't. I could buy a Tesla if I wanted to buy a Tesla. I actually don't want a Tesla. So that's the difference, right? It's like if you shift your desires to want what you already have and to like have a degree of gratitude for what you already have, I think it curbs the desire for more. I've written before. I, I love what you said. I think it's a minority opinion or at least it's a minority opinion that people choose to vocalize of this consumer society that we live within. I think in the fire movement, everybody knows it. But again, I think if you were just to poll 100 Americans walking on the street and say, you know, what are your your thoughts on consumerism? They'd kind of look at you like, what what are you talking about? It's partially because it's the only thing we've known. It's Mm -hmm. It's that story about two fish swimming along in the stream and a third fish swims by them and says, morning, boys, you know, how's the water? And then they swim along a little bit further and the, the two fish keep going and one looks at the other one and he goes, what the hell is water, right? Mm-hmm. When you're swimming in it, when you're yeah. swimming in consumerism, sometimes it's hard for you to realize that that is what we're surrounded by. You did make me think of something there. Oh, I know what it was. I was doing some Googling on the side. I apologize to anyone studying for their SAT English. Depravity, not the same as <laughs> deprivation. Depravity is what's morally corrupt or evil. Deprivation or depriving is whether you withhold something from yourself or you don't have something that you need. However, I will say that when we're talking about consumerism and billionaire influencers, we can have both depravity and deprivation in the same conversation. So there we go. Like a good podcast host, I found the segue there. (laughs) Diana, I do want to go back. We've had an awesome conversation. I want to hear a little bit more if you can share what exactly is the Economy Conference and then this podcast that you mentioned on the side. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So Optimal Finance Daily, I've been hosting it for over three years now. It's a show that's been around for, I want to say eight years, something like that. So I've just been the host for the last three years. And basically what I'm doing is I'm reading you an article from a personal finance blogger like you. I read your stuff on the show. (laughs) And then I offer a little bit of commentary on it every single day in 10 minutes or less. And so what I think is cool about this show is that you get so many different opinions about personal finance. Like, There's a lot of conflicting things, even like some people say, you know, you got to buy a house and other people like don't buy a house. And here's why. Right. So you kind of get a lot of different opinions and information about personal finance. And I like to say that these amazing bloggers wrote these great songs and I get to perform the covers, you know, so it's it's a real narration style podcast. It's just me. It's not like interviews or anything. So, yeah, you can subscribe to that. It's Optimal Finance Daily every single day. And then the economy conference is really... It started out with me asking myself this question, like, what would I do if I didn't have to work for money? And I found a big shift in my life when I started to go to in-person events. And there's this one event in particular called World Domination Summit, which I know sounds like insane. (laughs) It actually doesn't exist anymore. They had a... Is that where Dr. Evil got his start? I know. It's produced by Pinky and the Brain. And no, I'm kidding on that. But it's Mr. Money Mustache actually spoke there, I think, in 2016. That's how I learned about it because he blogged about it. When I would go to this event, it's not a fire event, but it was all about unconventional living and how do you live a remarkable life 
in this conventional world. And so they would attract like thousands of people starting their own business, creatives, people just living differently. I found like so much energy at this in-person event with, you know, just people making me feel like my life was a lot more expansive than I was feeling in my my day-to-day life. And I would leave there just feeling like my life is so full of possibility. And so I really wanted to create something that gave people that feeling, but specifically about their money. And so I created the Economy Conference. And what, you know, the tagline for the event, I like to say that Phi is better with friends. I have found that in my own life, like there's a, a huge online community and I'm kind of a lurker, right? Like I'll read the stuff we've mentioned, like what, the posts that we see in the different groups and all that mm-hmm. kind of thing. But I wasn't really an active participant in that. I don't really like getting to know people. I don't feel connected to people through a screen, right? I need yeah. that face-to-face yeah interaction. And I do find that the kind of authentic conversations that happen at events like economy don't happen online. Because I think there's so much nuance in the way that we pursue fire that it's just, it's hard to capture that in a post. And so really what the economy conference is about is community and inspiration for people on the path to fi. And I mean, it's been amazing to see the impact that it's having there have been people who have like met their spouse at Economy, which is like, man, I want to go crash your wedding. Like that's so exciting <laughs> to me to see people meet there and then go travel the world together or start businesses together. Or it's the caliber of the kind of person that would get on a plane and put themselves out there in a room of hundreds of strangers is just remarkable. I like to say that the people who go to Economy are the most creative, generous, most intelligent people I've ever met. They really are. Yeah, I think that most of us pursuing fire can feel pretty isolated on this path. And so to meet other people doing it and seeing the different ways that people are pursuing fire is really helpful. And then we also have, you know, main stage speakers, we have workshops, we have a ton of social activities. So it's really a long weekend. It's Friday through Sunday. It's happening this next March 15th through 17th. Tickets are available now. We're over halfway sold out. And cool. it's a real party about money. That's awesome. And it's in Cincinnati, correct? Yeah, Cincinnati. And, and you're in Cincinnati as well. Yep. And then so and you're doing some in-person meetups just throughout the year for anyone listening in greater Cincinnati, right? Yeah. And those meetups, I'm also encouraging if you guys listen to like the Choose Five podcast, which is really popular within the fire movement, they have all these local groups. Like you can go on their website and find a local group and go and meet people in person. That's kind of where it starts. And so, yeah, we do that here in Cincinnati as well. But economy is more of a production with like hundreds of people versus like a small meetup that you might do locally. Very cool. So this March, everybody, if you are interested in learning more about the financial independence movement or meeting cool people already involved in the movement, book your flight out to Cincinnati, reach out to Diana, get your ticket to economy. Now we'll throw all the important links in in the show notes, Diana. But if anybody does want to learn more specifically about economy, maybe reach out to you. Is there one place or is there a couple places they can go to to find you to connect? Yeah, you can. I think the easiest way is my website. You can sign up for my mailing list. That's kind of the best way to not have to fight the algorithm on social media to get all the news on what's Mm -hmm. going on with Economy. So yeah, sign up for the mailing list and there's a contact form right on my website. Cool. And that's economyconference.com or is that a different website? Economyconference.com. And economy is spelled with an M-E at the end rather than an M-Y. Fun little play on words there. We will make sure we get the correct spelling in the show notes, everybody. So you can check out the links there. Diana, thanks so much for coming on the Best Interest Podcast. Well, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Best Interest Podcast. If you have a question for Jesse to answer on a future episode, send him an email at jesse at bestinterest.blog. Again, that's jesse at bestinterest.blog. Did you enjoy the show? Subscribe, rate, and review the podcast wherever you listen. This helps others find the show and invest in knowledge themselves, and we really appreciate it. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Best Interest Podcast. The Best Interest Podcast is a personal podcast meant for education and entertainment. It should not be taken as financial advice and is not prescriptive of your financial situation.